WCNC Charlotte. This is Flashpoint, where power and politics collide and the tough questions get asked and answered. Thanks for joining us here on Flashpoint. I'm Ben Thompson. The city of Charlotte will now require the vaccine for new workers. It comes as leaders say 70% of the city staff is now vaccinated. After offering incentives, the city did see a boost in vaccinations. Take a look. The department's seen the biggest jumps, Charlotte Fire, Charlotte Water, Aviation, and CMPD. Workers who don't get vaccinated could face some consequences. Joining us this morning, Charlotte City Councilman Tark Bakari and Larkin Eggleston. Gentlemen, thank you for coming on. Glad to be here. Uh, Tark, I'll begin with you. Um, the city said it had hoped to reach 75% of vaccination among workers, and, and we still might get there, but we're not there yet. Um, what happens to those workers who are not getting vaccinated? Well, that's that's what we're going to find out, right? And I, we were on the show probably a month or two or three ago when we announced, had just announced the the competition where we were giving incentives away, which I didn't think was that great of an idea. It, it's had some results, as we've seen. More people have gotten it. But now we're, we're kind of probably at that point where we're close to those who were putting it off or whatever. And, and now we're at the final grouping of folks who have a reason. And I know for anecdotal examples, some of those reasons are incredibly valid. Folks with, you know, preconditions that, that um, have immune uh, deficiencies, um, cancer survivors, things like that, that have those questions. And then there are others that are simply probably looking at it and saying, you know, with all vaccines, there is risk and I need to make that decision. Um, it isn't something that I just do without making a decision. So, you know, while the vaccine is certainly something that helps us, the more people that have it, the better. Uh, you know, it's a slippery slope we're on right now. And as you see with what the announcement was from the manager and, and kind of where we are, it's exactly where I thought it was heading in that meeting where we talked about it a few months ago, which is um, they're kind of teetering on this edge of starting now saying no new employees are going to be hired that aren't vaccinated. And that's going to evolve quickly then to the to the next step, which is, are we going to fire people that don't have it? And I think that's ridiculous because are we going to fire people next year that don't have the second booster or the year after that who don't get a third shot? I mean, this is a new normal and we have to act accordingly. Still, we're talking about in some cases when you break it down by department, you're talking about some you know public facing departments in, in many cases. While we said that the departments are uh, like the police department, the fire department are seeing big jumps in the last few months. Still, less than 60% of Charlotte firefighters uh, are vaccinated about two thirds of cats workers, two thirds of police. Uh, Larkin, I mean, these are these are public facing departments. These aren't people who are holed up in offices somewhere. These are people that are interacting with with the public on a daily basis. Yeah, I think there's a material difference between people who can work in isolation or can work from home um, and the people who are interacting with the public every day. And so that was one of the big concerns that some of our lower vaccination rates were among those folks who are interacting with, with customers and citizens every single day. So um, I, I certainly support the idea of if we're hiring new folks, we don't wanna bring in folks who are contributing to a challenge we already have, which is getting our vaccination rates up. Uh, and I, I can't fathom that there would be, um, that there would not be carve outs for people who have legitimate medical issues that would preclude them from getting the vaccine. So those, those exist, those are real. And I think those will certainly be accounted for in anything that we do. Tark, I, I know you're worried about folks getting fired uh, for this, but would you, would you, either one of you, be open to what basically the county has, and that's uh, requiring proof of vaccination or weekly testing of all employees? Is, is that something, Tark, that, that you would be open to that you think is a fair sort of middle ground? 
I, th I think there, there is, there has to be room for compromise like that or other things, as long as the protocols get, um, you know, more efficient and, and ease of use kind of in their nature. Um, we have to, especially for fr frontline employees like that. But I I'll just go back to why this is just rubs me the wrong way. These are all the exact same people for almost two years that we've relied upon. We didn't say a word when we were sending them into danger when there was no vaccine and every day they did it. And now we're in this weird spot where it's like a almost like a PR move where we're where we're firing nurses and and debating, you know, are we going to fire fire department members and, and police police officers? And I think that's just ridiculous for how we've relied on them when, in fact, you know, the vaccine is a personal decision. I have it. I don't know why we have to run around and say anytime we say this, I have it, though. I have it. But I do. But I also believe that where there's risk, there's choice. And these folks, they, they have the right to make those choices. But at the end of the day, I think this can be solved easily. The, the mayor, the manager said we're going to look at the Department of Labor and how they decide to handle reimbursement for testing and things like that for costs for us. If people make this decision, they should be on, have to sign away uh, exposure rights to be able to sue their employer or maybe their secondary priority when it comes to medical emergency facilities. And that's a trade-off, but that's a decision they have to make. We shouldn't force people into one bucket. Larkin. Yeah, I think that it, to me, the, the difference is that it's not just a matter of personal risk, that it is a, a public risk when we've got people going out and interacting with folks in our community. And so I think that's where we have to look at it differently than someone who sits at a desk and could potentially do that job from home in isolation. So it, yes, there's some personal risk that people are allowed to assume, um, but when it starts to impact the, the folks that they engage with on a day-to-day -day basis, then I think we have to take those people into consideration too, because they are unknowingly being exposed to additional risk, um, not by their own choice. All right, let's talk about uh, redistricting. Uh, this week's uh, redistricting uh, subcommittee of council held a listening session to hear from neighbors about their concerns or questions with the new maps. We've talked about it here on Flashpoint many times. Uh, the committee working on drawing new district lines in Charlotte after the release of that new census data that came out and, and, and lots of growth here in the city in the last 10 years. Right now, the committee has three maps they're considering, none of them really making too big a change. Uh, um, this has been the source of, I know, um, heated rhetoric in the past. Um, Tark, since, since this is something that you've been uh, sort of in the public sphere about talking back and forth, um, I'll start with you. Has, has this gotten unnecessarily heated? I mean, the maps have not changed that much. And I, and I know you'll make the case that, that's, yeah, because I've drawn attention to it, but um, was it worth all, all, all the, the fuss? Yeah, I, I think it was incredibly unnecessarily uh, um, political and nasty uh, where it didn't need to be. But I go back to what you just said is, is if I hadn't done what, what I did right when I saw what the chairman Malcolm Graham was doing in the beginning, taking away the criteria for our consultants to consider um, political, major political party balanced in, in the redrawing of the maps, basically saying few moves is possible, which few moves is possible equals gerrymandering because there's no other way in as few moves as possible given the geographic setup of Charlotte to, to, to not stack and pack district six with Democrat precincts, therefore going closer to a 10 to one balance when in reality we should have, you know, two safe Republican seats and another potentially four toss-up seats that could go Republican. So uh, Malcolm Graham got his hand caught in the cookie jar right up front, 
And ultimately now we have three maps, only the first one, which we would have had three flavors of the first map had I not done what I'd done in the beginning. Um, the first still, one still, is the one that let, has- let, 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 Just let me interrupt you real quick because I think you also called him a hack at one point, which I mean, uh, having covered city council, having covered the, your predecessors, Annie Doolin and, and Kitty Smith there in the chamber for years myself, I mean, it's sort of a body that sort of prided itself in being relatively civil over the years. Um, I mean, was it necessary to get to that point of rhetoric? No. Uh, and again, I, I, I said those words at a ill-timed interview with Axios the morning after the end of a contentious, you know, month, months, months long debate over the comprehensive 2040 comp plan. Uh, where, you know, yeah, I, I, I call a spade a spade. I wish I hadn't done that. I did it. Uh, it doesn't make me feel like I said something. I'm, I'm not going to say no, I don't believe that in my heart. It's just, you're right. Uh, decorum of history would have said, don't call Malcolm Graham a political hack. So, you know, I am sorry about that. Okay. Tark has a tendency to be a little dramatic. Uh, but the, the fact of the matter is you couldn't, if you let Tark draw the map by himself, you couldn't draw four toss-up districts in addition to two Republican safe seats. Not true. There, there's under 20% Republicans in this community. Now, granted, unaffiliated is, is you know, the fastest growing party across the country. That unaffiliated voters tend to vote Democratic in our community. So it is not, there's nothing unfair about the fact that our council is nine Democrats and two Republicans. Um, but, and I do think that there's merit to saying we don't want to change the map any more than we have to. But that can't be the only criteria. So there were a number of criteria that were considered. I think we have maps now that are fair. I think we have maps now that the council will largely, if not unanimous, well, we definitely won't unanimously. I'm pretty sure there's one person who's going to vote against any map that's put forward. But we ought to be close to a unanimous vote. And I think the maps that are in front of us are fair. Um, they probably won't change the makeup of the council. Uh, but I, again, given the, the way that you, if you look at the last competitive mayor's election, um, I think that it's it's pretty clear that even most of the independent voters in this community are voting for Democrats. And so having a, a strong majority of Democrats on this council is, is not unfair and it's not gerrymandering. Larkin, one thing that's come up several times uh, here on Flashpoint, should there be an eighth district seat? Probably. Um, and that could be in addition to the seats we have now, or it could be um, taking away an at-large seat and making it an eighth district seat. So we could add one person to the council total, uh, or we could keep it at 11 and just shift the makeup of district to at-large. But I do think so, because now these districts are going to be ballpark 125,000 folks each. Some of them right now are over 140,000 people. Um, and it's just not, people cannot be as effective representing that large um, of, a, of a population base as they could be if they were representing you know, proportionately less. Do you think, I think that it makes more sense to have more district seats? Do you think the full council will will make that call? I know Malcolm Graham has said, head of this subcommittee has it, said, it won't happen this time. There's okay. there's almost zero chance it happens this time. But I think it's something that needs to be considered in the future. Tark. Yeah, I just it, I, the bottom line is you can draw a map that's more fairly representative and not suppressing Republican votes by going to ten district seats and one at-large seat. There's no reason for us to have four at-large folks. You can make claims all day, oh, they're for strategic views and we have the micro view. We all have the exact same strategic workload. We just have to handle 125,000 constituent uh, requests and needs and concerns while they don't. You took 10 district seats, you could carve out two 
uh, tight Republican ones, and four that could be close to toss-up even, uh, and that would be realistic, and it would fit the needs of our city better. And to the to the Malcolm question, you know, I, here's what I think is most important there. Larkin has been handed leadership roles like over the public safety committee topics of the last year, and he navigated through those really well. We all, I've been given opportunities to lead and redesign the arts approach and how we fund arts in this community, and we got through some very tricky situations. This was as, as much of a teed up shot of anything, of hold a committee, listen to the public, and let the consultants draw some maps. There was no reason for any kind of drama or problem around this, and it just shows this is going to haunt Malcolm for a while that when given leadership opportunities, no matter how small, he ends up creating a, 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 a circus that we all have to then go through. Larkin, I'll let you respond. Targ says he regrets um, the name the calling, decor- Larkin, the, the name lack calling. of decorum and then does it again. So I, hey, you, it's one it. thing to call names. It's another thing to cite facts. All right, gentlemen, stay with us. More Flash went after this. Welcome back to Flashpoint. Charlotte City leaders trying to solve a deadly problem happening in our streets weekly, if not daily. We're talking about car crashes. CMPD says last year, 81 people died on the streets of Charlotte due to car accidents. So far this year, 64 people have died the same way. One option being debated, bring back red light cameras. They were once used in Charlotte at several intersections, but the city stopped using them in 2006. The mayor has asked the subcommittee to look at different technologies and to have a update for council by the end of the year. Still with us here on Flashpoint. City Councilman Tark Bakari and Larkin Eccleston. Larkin, let me ask you, this is something I think typically has been in a purview of people at least think of purview of, you know, police, that sort of thing. What can you all do as city council members to stop a problem like this? It's both and. It's enforcement, and that comes from the police side. It's potentially technology. Uh, It likely won't be red light cameras because there's some state laws that make that difficult for us to to re-implement and the results were varied in terms of, of what we had before. But it's also, and, and our colleague Braxton Winston brought this up and, and several, I think all of us pretty much agree, it's it's not only the enforcement piece, it's also street design. It's things like um, just this week, we we opened the new segment of Parkwood um, that we where we had a, a cyclist killed just a couple of years ago by a car driving recklessly. We've done a road diet project there that has added protected bike lanes and and narrowed that road to one travel lane in each direction so that people will actually go the speed limit um, as opposed to going 15, 20, 30 miles over the speed limit on a very dangerous curvy road. So we've got to do things around street design and work with CDOT on that in our transportation and planning committee. We've got to do things like stiffer enforcement. We are just not writing as many tickets now. Uh, It's because we're understaffed in CMPD. They are overworked and asked to do 150 different things. um, And that oftentimes just falls down the priority ladder. But the fact of the matter is if, if people get tickets for driving 30 miles an hour over the speed limit uh, and their insurance starts to go up, their behavior will change. And we've got to change behaviors because there are just too many people driving too recklessly on our streets and, and people are getting hurt and people are dying. Tark, I know for you, uh, th- this is personal. Um, talk to us. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things where we've always all, there's to a person on this council, cared about this, talked about it. I, I think in hindsight, you know, with all the things we look at, we look at some of these numbers in aggregate and we lose the humanity of thinking about them. And, you know, uh, it's it's crazy that over a month uh, ago, you know, my wife and, and three kids were at the bus stop on my daughter's first day of kindergarten and, and, a, and a truck, you know, hit my wife, hit two of the three kids 
um, and there was no sidewalks, right? And at the end of the day, you know, the, the, we've had to, our lives have been changed for this last month and I am so lucky and I thank God every day that they aren't changed forever. And, and I think that's, I'm gonna look at those stats totally different now every time I see him, not because I didn't care, we didn't care before, but, but because moments like that change the way you look at life in general. And I, I'm, I've started to read different books on, on and really just trying to use this passion and drive I now have for some good beyond what we've been through, which we're not even through it all yet is the crazy part. And I'm, I'm looking at, at kind of more of the evolution, thanks to some friends who've recommended some books of how we got to this point. But one thing's for sure, we need to start getting serious about investing in our infrastructure, particularly our sidewalks, um, you know, walk walkability. This week was walk your kids to school we, uh, day and I t- walk my kids to Selwyn and I mean, I'm, I'm maybe it's PTSD. I'm still looking around my shoulder as we're walking on the grass of people's yards because there's no sidewalks. And, and you know, we're people think South Charlotte is great and everything's fine. Like we don't have that here and the rest of the city doesn't have it as well. So this is where we need to get serious and we need to get real serious about these repeat offenders who are consistently speeding. The technology though is the solution we need to do a do a new deal in this city with infrastructure like walkability and sidewalks like 5g for autonomous vehicles because the intelligence of the technology 10 years from now is what is going to ultimately save lives and cities that are prepared for that and have the infrastructure like sidewalks to then support it are going to be the ones who actually uh, you know meet the goals of things like vision zero but i mean Last question here, Larkin. How realistic is that in that, you know, when it comes to infrastructure specifically, that's hugely a, a, a federal thing as far as money, billions and billions of, I mean, how much can you guys do on your own? A decent amount, I think. There's, but there's got to be a mind shift from top to bottom in government. We built our cities primarily with the motive of how do we move cars as fast as possible from point A to point B. We've got to rebuild our cities, and it's going to take a lot of time, but we've got to rebuild them with safety in mind. Uh, that was not done historically, but it has to be done now, and it has to be done at a local, state, and federal level. All right, gentlemen, thank you. Larkin, thank you, Tark. Thank you. Uh, our thoughts with your family, too, as well. All right, more Flashpoint after this. Welcome back to Flashpoint. Good news on the job front here at home. More people are starting their own businesses than ever before here in North Carolina. The Secretary of State says her office is processing applications for small businesses in record numbers. WCNC Charlotte's Michelle Bowden has more. North Carolina Secretary of State says when COVID first shut things down, she thought her office would be dead. She says she could not have been more wrong. And the reasons behind all these new small businesses popping up, well, that might surprise you as well. Small business creation has taken off like a rocket. I mean, a jet propelled rocket. Elaine Marshall has been North Carolina's Secretary of State since 1997. In all that time, ever seen anything like this? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I thought when state government kind of closed down that we would go into something of a lull. I was so wrong, it wasn't funny. In 2020, more than 127,000 people applied to start a business, a 27% increase from the year before. But this year, in 2021, the numbers are even higher, on pace to set a new record of 185,000 applications. Here we are in 2021, just blowing a hole through what we did in 2020. And you might be surprised at the reasons why. We asked people, you know, what motivated you to do this? A lot of people said it was because they saw an opportunity. We thought maybe you lost your job, got fired, might be the high point of the reason that people did this. 
but we found out that wasn't the case. People wanted flexibility. They wanted to be their own boss, or it's a part-time assistance thing, a gig for them to have a second job. Lauren Bryant was a makeup artist who actually was laid off at the start of the pandemic and realized she wanted flexibility to pick up her son from school, so she started a side hustle designing floral creations. It turned into a full-time job, and it has been absolutely amazing, but definitely not something that I planned for or ever even dreamed of owning a business. Her company, The Rooted Nest, has become a huge success, and the Secretary of State's office says that's the best news. They're surveying applicants and have found 89% of people who started these new businesses are still operating a year later. I'm totally totally enjoying it. I'm just delighted to see this trend. If you're interested in starting your own business, one of the best resources, community colleges have small business centers. All the information that you need, they can give you, and it is a free resource. Reporting in Charlotte, Michelle Bowden, WCNC Charlotte. More Flashpoint after this. Before we leave you, we just want to remember Janice Covington Allison. She died last weekend after a long illness. Janet spent decades advocating for transgender rights here in Charlotte, dating back to the early 80s. She was the first openly transgender woman to serve as a delegate to the Democratic National Convention back here in Charlotte when it was here in 2012. And for thousands, Janice was the first trans person they ever saw on TV, a frequent guest here on Flashpoint. She patiently helped me and thousands of others better understand and appreciate trans issues. I look forward to our interviews because I knew I'd learn a lot and laugh some as well. She also proudly served in the Army during Vietnam. Our thoughts with her family and friends. We'll see you back here next week.